Welcome to the Temple Baptist Church Podcast, coming to you from Swan River, Manitoba, Canada. This week, we join Pastor Neil Effa as he preaches from 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 7, in the eighth part of a sermon series called Character Under Construction, with this message from July 21st titled, Imitating God's Love. On October 31st, 1517, at 12 o'clock, Martin Luther nailed his 95 Thesis on the subject of indulgences to the door of the Castle Church in Wittenberg, Germany. And in so doing, he unwittingly launched the Protestant Reformation. Prior to this momentous occasion, Martin Luther had diligently studied Paul's letter to the Romans. And in so doing, he came to understand that no amount of good works can earn God's righteousness. Rather, salvation is a free gift received by faith. However, he also came to realize that receiving the gift of salvation through faith began the process of transformation. The process of spiritual growth and maturity and the shaping of one's character into the likeness of Jesus. Martin Luther would later write, This life, therefore, is not righteousness, but growth in righteousness. Not health, but healing. Not being, but becoming. Not rest, but exercise. We are not yet what we shall be, but we are growing toward it. The process is not yet finished, but it is going on. This is not the end, but it is the road. All does not yet gleam in glory, but all is being purified. In other words, once we take that initial step of faith, receiving Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, you and I are set on a path toward ever and ever greater righteousness as we walk with Christ and as we grow in our relationship with him. Our character is meant to represent the character of Jesus himself. We are to grow in Christ-likeness. And this is precisely what Peter teaches in the first chapter of his second epistle. In this chapter, he reminds us that our lives resemble a construction project. He reminds us that we are better than we once were, but we are not yet what we ought to be. We are a work in process. We are being formed and shaped into something that is not yet complete. Well, after telling us that God has given us every necessary resource to grow in Christ-likeness, and that you and I need to make every effort towards spiritual maturity, Peter then specifically details the Christian graces that are to be constructed or to be developed in our lives. And so listen to this exhortation, a passage that we have read over these last several weeks. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. In our study of these verses, we've already considered the first six qualities in Peter's list. We talked about virtue, which is moral courage to do the right thing, regardless of the temptation to sin and the pressures to conform to this world. And knowledge is spiritual discernment as to what is right and what is wrong in all things. We talked about self-control, controlling our passions instead of our passions and desires controlling us. As someone once said, the hardest person to say no to is oneself. 
Self-control says no to our passions and to our desires. We talked about steadfastness. Pressing on in the sufferings, the sorrows, and the storms of life when you feel like giving up. And godliness, living all of our lives in the presence of God, under the authority of God, and for the honor and glory of God. And then brotherly affection. The love which Christians cherish for each other as brethren. Understanding that we are God's family. We are brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ. Well, this morning we come to the last quality in Peter's list. He tells us to supplement our faith with love. As we have taken this initial step of salvation, we are now to supplement this faith with the quality, with the virtue of love. As we did when we discussed the other character qualities, we will discuss the meaning of the word love as used by Peter, determine how to develop this quality in our life, and then consider an individual in Scripture that exemplified this grace. The Greeks had four words which we translate as love, and each word carried its own nuance. The Greek word eros is the word for sensual or romantic love. It originated from the mythological Greek god of love, sexual desire, physical attraction, and physical love. It is passionate emotion and feeling based. The Greek phileia is the type of intimate love in the Bible that Christians are to practice toward each other. The Bible translates this word, as we studied last Sunday, as brotherly affection. The term describes a powerful emotional bond seen in deep friendships. It encompasses care and respect and, and compassion. Brotherly love unites believers together in Christ. And the Greek word storge describes family love. The affectionate bond that develops naturally between parents and children and brothers and sisters. However, the love Peter lists in the first chapter of the second epistle is not eros, nor is it philea, and neither is it storge. Rather, it is another form of love. And the word Peter uses is agape. He tells us to supplement our faith with agape love. Agape love is selfless, it's sacrificial, and it's unconditional love. It is the highest of the four types of love. Agape is a term that defines God's immeasurable, incomparable love for humankind. It is his ongoing, his outgoing, his self-sacrificing concern for lost and fallen people, for you and me. And God gives this love without condition, unreservedly, to those who are undeserving and inferior to him. God loves because that is his nature and the expression of his being. He loves the unlovable and the unlovely, not because we deserve to be loved or because of any excellence that we possess, but because it is his nature to love and he must be true to his nature. This love, which is the very essence of God, is a love, according to Peter, which ought to characterize our life. Because of our faith in Jesus, we are given a new nature, a nature capable of expressing agape love. Concerning this agape love, commentator F.B. Meyer wrote, wherever there is true love, there must be giving and giving to the point of sacrifice. Love is not satisfied with giving trinkets. It must give at the cost of sacrifice. It must give blood, life, all. 
And, it's, and it was so with the love of God. He so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Christ also loved and gave himself up, an offering and a sacrifice to God. He goes on to say we are to imitate God's love in Christ. The love that gives that counts no cost too great. And in sacrificing itself for others, offers all to God and does all for his sake. Such was the love of Jesus, sweet to God, as the scent of fields of new-mown grass in June. And this must be our model. Not to those who love us, but who hate. Not to those who are pleasant and agreeable, but who repel. Not because our natural feelings are excited, but because we will to minister. Even to the point of the cross, must our love go out. And every time we thus sacrifice ourselves to another for the sake of the love of God, we enter into some of the meaning of the sacrifice of Calvary. And there is wafted up to God the odor of a sweet smell. As F.B. Meyer implies, this love is costly. It costs us our pride, our comfort, our self-will, our self-sufficiency. At times, it costs us relationships with family, our expectation of safety, and more. But in laying these aside, we learn the worthiness of the object of our love in a deeper way. We find increasing freedom, and as we mature, we resolve to love God and to love as God loves, no matter what it costs us. However, as the Oxford Dictionary of the Christian Church states, agape love is a self-sacrificial love, And it goes on to say, a kind naturally expressed by God, but not so easily by men and women. Once we recognize that the love God has bestowed upon us is not merely an emotion, but an act of the will, we are forced to evaluate how we love others. Specifically, we must evaluate whether we put people into categories of unlovable and lovable. If love is an act of the will, not motivated by need, not measuring worth, and not requiring it to be reciprocated, then there is no such thing as a category of unlovable. This is what Jesus teaches in the parable of the Good Samaritan. The parable is careful to illustrate that love is costly and bestowed upon an undeserving recipient. As I mentioned, agape love is not easy. And it does not come naturally to most of us. It is a choice we make to serve others with humility without expecting anything in return. And this type of love enables us to love those whom others see unlovable and allows us to serve people at their deepest need, whether they deserve it or not. And this form of love is not a faucet to be turned off or on at will. We are called and enabled to love as God loves. Now you may be wondering, how does agape love differ from brotherly affection, the quality that we studied last Sunday? Well, as I mentioned, brotherly affection refers to the particular bond believers have between themselves. But agape love refers to love of all mankind. And it's rooted in the commandment to love your neighbor as yourself. As I mentioned, regardless of who it is. Now, how is it possible to grow in this kind of love? How can agape love be developed in our life and displayed in our character? I mean, we know what God wants us to do. We know that he wants us to love one another 
as he has loved us, but how can we do it? Well, there are several things I would want to suggest this morning. There are other things that can help us, that can foster love in our lives. But two in particular that I emphasize this morning. First, live in the outflow of God's love. Live in the outflow of God's love. In other words, recognize and receive the love God has for you. And I think this is the point that John is making in his first epistle. He says, dear friends, let us continue to love one another for love comes from God. Anyone who loves is a child of God and knows God. But anyone who does not love does not know God for God is love. God showed how much he loved us by sending his one and only son into the world so that we might have eternal life through him. This is real love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son as a sacrifice to take away our sins. Dear friends, since God loved us that much, we surely ought to love each other. Max Lucado in his book, A Love Worth Giving, asks, could it be that the first step of love is not toward them in terms of other people, but rather toward him, toward God? Could it be that the secret to loving is receiving? You give love by receiving it. He continues by saying, long to be more loving? Begin by accepting your place as a dearly loved child. Want to learn to forgive? Then consider how you've been forgiven. Finding it hard to put others first? Think of the way that Christ put you first. Need more patience? Drink from the patience of God. Is generosity an elusive virtue? Then consider how generous God has been with you. Having trouble putting up with ungrateful relatives or cranky neighbors? God puts up with you when you act the same. Can't we love like this, he asks. Not without God's help, can't, we can't. Oh, we may succeed for a time. But if we haven't received these things ourselves, how can we give them to others? We need help from an outside source, a transfusion. Would we love as God loves? Then we start by receiving God's love. The knowledge that God has loved us in spite of all our sin and our meanness and our selfishness and our wrong will send us into the world to love in the same way. God's love to me is inexhaustible. And I, as well as you, need to love others from the bedrock of God's love to us. C.S. Lewis picked up on this thought when he wrote, we're all receiving charity. There's nothing in all of us that cannot be naturally loved. You might as well ask people to like the taste of rotten bread or the sound of a mechanical drill as to expect that God would find something lovable in us. To be loved by God is an act of charity toward beggars and rebels. It's an act of charity toward us. It's a pure gift given to the undeserving and the unlovable. You and I don't provoke, trick, convince, earn, or win agape from God. But we live under the umbrella of God's love. And in so doing, we love others with the same love that we are experiencing from our Heavenly Father. As Max Lucado exhorts us, live loved. Live loved. But you and I also must yield ourselves to the Holy Spirit 
if we are going to love in the way that Peter commands us to love, if we're going to supplement, to add to our faith, love. The Apostle Paul in Galatians chapter 5 tells us to walk in the Spirit. And he says, as we walk in the Spirit, we will not fulfill the desires of the flesh. Rather, as we walk in the Spirit, the fruit of the Spirit will be produced in our life. And if you're familiar with the fruit of the Spirit, you know that Paul lists love as an outworking of the Spirit's work in our life. If we hope to accomplish what God desires in our lives, we need to see him as our source of power, our source of strength. The power of the Holy Spirit is God's divine ability and authority released in our lives for the purpose of godly living and fruitful service. When we walk in the Spirit, we're relying on his strength to accomplish his will and his fruit in our lives. We may get tired, but we won't be burned out. We won't get discouraged by obstacles knowing the Spirit within us will enable us to do whatever he calls us to accomplish. We'll trust God rather than trying to manipulate our circumstances. We may experience distress, but we won't become desperate. When we do God's work in his strength, in his way, with his wisdom, we'll be blessed no matter what is going on around us. Walking in the Spirit doesn't make life easy, but we never have to walk through it alone because our helper is always with us. And so when we look at the work and ministry of the Holy Spirit in our lives, we realize that he gives us a power to create love within our hearts. If you and I want to become loving persons, we need to pray for the transforming, empowering work of the Holy Spirit. We must walk in step with the Holy Spirit. We must be filled with the Holy Spirit. And as we do, agape love will be displayed in our lives. Well, this morning we considered what Paul meant when he talked about adding or supplementing love to our faith. And we talked about two ways in which that love can be fostered in our lives and, and how it can be developed within us. But I want us to look at an individual who demonstrated love, an Old Testament character. And so let's briefly look at the life of Ruth. Her story is told in a book that bears her name. And God did something in Ruth's life that he desires to duplicate in our lives. He wants to foster within us agape love, sacrificial, unconditional love. In order for us to understand the story of Ruth, we need to understand the context. The book of Ruth follows the book of Judges. The period of the Judges was a tumultuous and shameful time in Israel's history. In those days, Israel had no king. They were a theocracy, which means they were ruled directly by God. Whenever the people wandered from worship of God or got themselves into difficulty, God would raise up human leaders or judges to turn their hearts back to him and allow him to bless them once again. However, after each judge died, the nation would turn to its unfaithfulness. The period in Israel's history is described as a time when every man and woman did what was right in their own eyes. In other words, they abandoned the law and worship of God and pursued their own selfish ambitions, passions, and desires. Well, at the end of the book of Judges comes a story of Ruth. Not an Israelite, 
but a lowly and detestable Moabite widow. The book of Ruth is an account of how God takes a detested Moabite woman and makes her a woman of unparalleled character. In fact, her story proves that the right heritage or background is not necessary to be greatly transformed by God. The story of Ruth begins and ends in Bethlehem, a small town that in Hebrew means house of bread. Interestingly, this small town will, in later centuries, be the birthplace of Jesus, who identifies himself in John chapter 6 as a bread of life. But in the book of Ruth, it, Bethlehem is a small town suffering through a famine. And because of the famine, a woman by the name of Naomi, along with her husband Elimelech and her sons Malon and Chilion, crossed the Jordan River and settled in the land of Moab to seek relief from the famine. And here her sons marry Moabite women, Orpah and Ruth. Well, while in Moab, Naomi's husband died, and so also her sons. She and her two daughters-in-law are left widows. After about 10 years following the deaths of her husband and sons, news came that Bethlehem was recovering from the famine. And so Naomi set out for a return to Bethlehem. But as she did so, she encouraged her daughters-in-law to return to their families in Moab. Now, it's important for us to understand that in the ancient Near East, a woman without a husband was in a serious situation because she lacked literal security. She had no one to protect her. She was socially shamed. And she had no real role in society apart from her husband and her children. Naomi knew that if her daughters-in-law stayed in Moab, being Moabite women, the prospect of finding a husband and having children was good. But she also knew the prospect of finding Jewish men to marry them in Israel was very poor. Therefore, she tried to persuade them that following her back to Israel was not a good option. Orpah, however, did what her mother-in-law asked her to do. She did return to Moab, to her people and to her family. But Ruth did otherwise. Ruth chose to remain with Naomi. And as she did so, even though her mother-in-law was pleading her for, to her to go back to Moab, she made this great confession. She said, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. This was not a statement that Ruth made lightly. She fully understood the implications of what she was saying. But Ruth knew that Naomi needed her. Her commitment to Naomi was part of the commitment that she had made to God. Naomi's protestations could not sway her. She knew her place was with Naomi, no matter what. And because of that, she vowed that she would remain with her until death would part them. Ruth pledged her commitment without reservation. She was making a personal and costly sacrifice. In so doing, she was giving up her future. She said, do not urge me to leave you. 
She was willing to sacrifice her freedom from the responsibility for caring, of caring for Naomi. When Ruth's husband died, she was probably not more than 25 years old. For all she knew, she would never remarry or have children. But as a widow, she committed to care for her aging, widowed mother-in-law. This was a complete break with a past without any promises for the future. She was giving up her familiarity. For where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. She was willing to sacrifice her national identity and homeland. She was leaving the land where she was born, where she was raised, for a land with, a new, and, with new and strange customs. How would she be received in this new land? was a question I'm sure that she grappled with. She was willing to give up her family and friends. Your people shall be my people. She was willing to sacrifice a close relationship with her family. She was leaving her mother behind, her father behind, her extended family behind, her friends behind. And she was giving up her previous faith. Your God shall be my God. And I think it is for this reason that Naomi was able to demonstrate such sacrificial love to her mother-in-law. Because she embraced the God of Israel, the one and true God. She would no longer worship at the idol of Chemosh. Rather, she was placing her faith in Jehovah God, the one true God. She would trust him in her present situation and her future circumstances. What Ruth was saying to Naomi was, whatever befalls you will befall me. Wherever you go and whatever you encounter, whether good or bad, is what I am signing up for. Ruth cared enough for Naomi to forsake her homeland and help provide for Naomi with no guarantee of security for herself. Ruth's life is a picture of selflessness. She, she sacrificially gave up her life for Naomi. Someone once said, when the road up ahead splits into two, the path we choose often says as much about our character as it does about our destination. Ruth, as she came to this crossroads in her life, displayed a depth of character, a heart of unconditional love. Maybe, just maybe, she discovered something that you and I tend to overlook. She had come to understand through experience that there is joy in serving others. That it's more blessed to give than to receive. And that humility does come before honor. Ruth's selflessness was genuine. Her love was unconditional. The Apostle Paul, in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, describes a practical outworking of agape love. No words get to the heart of loving people like these words. In fact, someone said it is a job description for how we are to live our lives in this world. Another has suggested that in order for us to assess the depth of our love, we should replace the word love in this passage with our name. And so as we conclude this morning, I'm going to ask you to do so. The words from 1 Corinthians chapter 13 verses 4 to 7 will be projected on the screen. However, where the word love is to appear, there will be a blank space. And so I'm going to ask you to read this passage 
And when you come to that blank, we'll read it in silence. When you come to that blank, insert your name. And as you do, ask yourself, is that true of me? 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 4 to 7. Take time reading through this passage, and in that blank, insert your name as you read. Where do you need to grow in grace, in love? Which of these qualities, this description of agape love needs to mature and develop and grow in your life? Paul has set a standard in this passage that no one can meet. No one except Christ. It is a love that you and I cannot produce on our own. But it is a love that can be produced as we live loved, as we live under the umbrella of God's love, as we receive his love. And it can be produced in our lives as we walk in step with his spirit. As we allow the Holy Spirit to fill us, We will no longer fulfill the deeds of the flesh, but rather demonstrate the fruit of the Spirit. Agape love can only come from its source. Paul says in Romans 5.5, God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. And so we can obey the admonition from Peter to supplement our faith, to add to our faith, love, agape love. Heavenly Father, we know that we need to grow in love. We know that there are times when we categorize people as lovable or unlovable. Father, we know that there are times when we do not sacrifice as we ought to where the love that we extend to others is conditional it's based upon their merit or their standing or how they have responded to us but father we realize that that is not love and so this morning i pray that as we have read that description of love from first corinthians 13 that we would identify those areas that we need to grow in and that we would allow your spirit to produce that fruit within our life so that we bring honor and glory to your name. We're reminded from Paul in the book of Colossians that it's love that holds all the virtues together. And so, Father, may we leave from here this morning allowing you to mold us and shape us into people who love. In the name of Christ, I pray. Thanks for joining us. We hope we were able to provide wisdom and insight in your faith journey. 
If you would like to connect with us, you are welcome to join our service every Sunday morning at 10.30. For more information, you can find us at facebook.com slash tbcswanriver. And if you would like to find more episodes of our podcast, go to anchor.fm slash Church or search on your favorite podcast app.